The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. All right, we're looking at Jesus' walking on the water in Mark chapter 6, and David already told us a little bit about the Matthew account. This is Mark's account, and I'll just say, you know, when I used to play baseball, and that's been quite a while now, um, I always thought the hardest pitch to hit was a knuckleball, because it's so infrequently thrown, and the first time you see one of those things coming at you, the ball has no rotation, and it's just the, it's so startling that you just kind of freeze when, when the pitch is thrown. And, you know, you kind of don't know where that thing is going, and it's weird. Um, This text is very difficult, and there's a knuckleball. And we're so used to reading Matthew's account or John's account that we sometimes probably just want to preach Matthew or John from Mark's account. But I want you to just figure out, as I read it, what's the knuckleball? What is so odd about this text that makes it actually... Difficult to understand. And I've been chewing it on all week, and I'm still like, Lord, this is a hard passage. And I, I don't think many of the commentators either answered it either. So let's wrestle with this text together, uh, children as well. Let's give attention to God's word. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat, go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. When evening came, the boat was out on the sea. He was alone on the land. When he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him. And were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. He got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore, or put anchor down. And when they got in out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages and cities or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Hey, let me pray again for us. Father, help us to understand. And not only understand, Lord, I, I can't even change my own heart, much less the hearts of any that are listening. But you, by your Spirit, can change mine and all that are um, your Spirit's at work in. And we pray that you would be at work in each of us, conforming us to your likeness. Help us to see Jesus, see our need, and to trust and obey and to follow and to repent. We ask in your name. Amen. Well, if you like outlines, 
which I'm not really going to stick to it all that tightly, but verse 47 is you got the crisis that occurs. And the crisis is big storm. And the big storm in the middle of the night is the fourth hour of the night is this is 3 a.m. And so here it is 3 a.m. And John's account tells us that when they had rowed three or four miles, and yet the one word that's missing in the ESV here, which is a pretty big oversight that the NIV gets right, is they're on the middle of the sea. So it's four miles to the other side. What's the middle? Two miles. You guys are so smart. That would be the middle of the sea. They're in the middle of the sea. And yet it, John's account says they had rode three or four miles. So what does that tell you? <laughs> it says they were literally in torment and torture is the word. They're straining at the oars and they're way off course. They're being blown, okay? And John's account tells us there is waves. It's, 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 it's not a pleasant situation to be in the boat in the middle of the night and we have a crisis and that is the storm. Then we have verses 48 to 50. You have the crisis occurs. Now we have the Christ appears. And when Jesus appears, he, he, they think it's a phantom, a phantasma, a ghost, a water spirit. They're thinking this is the end. There was like, you know, some of these weird myths that before you die at sea, this, you know, these spirits will appear to you and they think this is it, you know, who knows. But it's, they think it's a ghost, a phantom. They cry out. Jesus reveals who he is, tells him to take heart, it is I, and then the calm happens. They get in the boat, instantly the storm is calm, and then the crisis occurs, <laughs> the real crisis, which is a bigger crisis than the first crisis. They were utterly astounded, and that's pretty weak translation. It's adverb, adjective, like this is exceedingly, excessively overwhelming, okay? It is as great as it could possibly be. And then it says, their hearts were hardened and they didn't understand about the loaves. And then we get to the urgency and the, the efficiency or the urgency and the effort of all the people in the land and how they get it. They get who Jesus is. They're running to get people to him. So where's the knuckleball? Where's the knuckleball in the text? Because, you know, when you see a text like this, you know, you, you, you instantly think, okay, Matthew's account, which David kind of gave to us, is this wonderful story about Peter. And Peter sees Jesus. They're all scared. But Peter recognizes him. And, and Jesus tells him to come. And he literally pries his fingers off of that boat, puts one foot after the other onto the stormy waters and starts walking to Jesus, right? And, and we love that story. And the, but then he started to sink when he saw the wind and the waves. And, but then they get into the boat after Jesus restores him, says, oh, you of little faith. When he gets into the boat, storm ceases and they worship him as the end of Matthew 14. When they, and it's just a nice, tidy story Worship Jesus. Jesus is bigger than your problems. He's bigger than the storm. Don't take your eyes off of Jesus. Don't look at the wind and the waves. Matthew. That's not Mark. Then you got John's account. And John gives us a, uh, a different picture of this. And John is right before the, right after the feeding of the 5,000. 
And the reason that he sends them out, and you have this immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. You're like, what's going on here? What's, what's going on? What's so urgent that Jesus has to immediately get his disciples into the boat and then and, and, and he sneaks up on the hillside to pray? What's going on? Well, Matthew, or John's account, chapter 6, verse 15 tells us they intended to take him by force and make him their king. These are 5,000 men, about 15,000, 20,000 people at least. They recognize Ezekiel 34, that there's one like David, and a shepherd means a king, and here's our king, and the king has actually fed us. He's, he's leading us to the green pastures, and here he's done it. He's the shepherd. This is David. He's better. This is Moses, and what do Moses and David do? I mean, Moses delivers him out of oppression from bondage. And what does David do? He's a great warrior. Here's Jesus. He's our Messiah. We're under oppression. We're under Rome. Let's take him right now. This is where the Essenes are all holed up, political people. They want to make Jesus their king. And so now this is it. We've got Jesus. Let's go make him king. And Jesus has to withdraw. And he, and he puts them on the boat, but he doesn't go with them. as to put some distance. And so you have this idea in John that we're a lot like this. They want to use Jesus for their purposes, to regain power, to regain influence, to conquer spiritual enemies. And so it's Jesus, we love you, and we have a wonderful plan for your life. And so we want to use Jesus to accomplish our ends. And there is part of us that wants to see things right, and the very last question that is asked of Jesus before he ascends into heaven is what? I mean, here are the, the disciples. They've seen his glory. They've seen the resurrected Christ. He's with them. And they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? We are political animals. And now is the time. And will you now please restore the kingdom to Israel? It's the last question to Jesus before he ascends into heaven. What does he say to them? It is not for you to know times or seasons. That's a good one to underline in your Bible. It's not for, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. That's a good humbling. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That sounds good. And in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Huh. What happened to restoring the kingdom to Israel? I mean, Jesus just turned that around and sends them out to the rest of the world. And so I think it's helpful for us in a, this time where everything is kind of Christian nationalism and you're hearing all the dangers of it and we haven't even gotten near 2024 and the election coming and it's going to be crazy and we need to be prepared now that what kingdom are we really about and who, which party are you for? Jesus' party? That's who you're for, okay? And so Christian nationalism was very much well and alive in the days of Jesus, and it was with his disciples. It was a temptation to use Jesus for their own ends. And then no sooner did they get out of the, as soon as they get to their destination and Jesus gets out of the boat again after he walks on the water, they recognized him. They sought him, they found him, and Jesus says to them, you're not seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're seeking me because you got a meal ticket. 
and you want a meal ticket for life. And so there's this idea in us that all of us, that we want to use Jesus. And so that's John. John's message is don't use Jesus. Matthew's message is worship Jesus. But Mark's message is a knuckleball. And so when you get to John or to Mark, what's the knuckleball? What do you got? Well, he tells them, 52, that they're absolutely overwhelmed, exceedingly overwhelmed, and they're saying, and Jesus is saying that's the wrong response. Mark's saying they didn't understand about the loaves, for their hearts were hardened. And so once again, we're getting a Mark and sandwich, and Mark is tying two stories together, bread and water, and he ties them together, and it's confusing. Maybe it's because our hearts are hardened. So what the Mark and sandwich is, is Jesus walks on the water after he feeds the 5,000. The response is overwhelming. And the text is literally saying that they're exceedingly excessively astonished or abounded, abounded, uh, overwhelmed. And that's not necessarily a good thing here. And so... The idea is that if they had understood about the loaves, they would have understood this. They would have understood his walking on the water, his calming of the sea. Jesus is demonstrating show and tell that he's the creator of heaven and earth, and he's the sustainer. He upholds all things, and he can heal people with a word, with a touch. He can multiply five loaves and two fish. He can feed an entire multitude of people and have multiplying abundance left over. He can walk on the water. He can show you his glory and pass by. But the disciples' faith is lacking in truly trusting him and acting upon him. And so when you look at the bookends of Matthew chapter 6, do you remember how the chapter began? If you look back at the beginning of Matthew chapter 6, it starts in his hometown And Jesus is in his hometown, and a prophet is without honor in his hometown, and he can do no mighty work there, except he laid his hands on a few sick people, and he healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. How's the chapter end? That as soon as he came upon the shore and they anchored, the people immediately recognized him or knew him or understood him. They got it, and they instantly start running. And they're running with urgency and with effort that they're taking all of these people and carrying them to Jesus. They laid their sick, and literally, they're being carried to Jesus after they've run. So we see that they're bringing the sick people to Jesus on their beds, and they laid their sick in verse 56. So we are talking effort We are talking urgency because faith is being exercised that they get it. Who are the people that get it? Not the people close to Jesus. The people close to Jesus, his hometown and his own disciples are the slowest to get it because their hearts are hardened, he's saying. But the people, these other people got it and they're instantly exercising faith. And now it leads to action. So who is Jesus in this text? Well, first of all, we have to say he's all-knowing. He's praying in the middle of the night, 
and here these people are out on the water, these disciples, do you think Jesus can actually see them? I mean, they're a couple miles away and it's at three o'clock in the morning and it's a boat that's very, very small. Do you think Jesus saw them? No. He's all-knowing, so he knows that they're struggling. He knows when we're straining at the oars, and that's so much of the imagery of the church is, you know, the, the idea of the boat, and when Jesus shows up in the boat, then everything is okay, but when Jesus is not there, we tend to strain at the oars, and so much of our, you know, it's the, the, the meditation reflection quote is, you know, the biggest problem is what? Is we're trying to do it in our own strength. Problem isn't outside of us, it's right here. We're trying to do it ourselves. And so they're straining at the oars, but Jesus is all knowing. He sees the problem. He's all powerful. How is he all powerful? Well, he rules over the sea. And the sea is this imagery in scripture of chaos. You have sea monsters in Job, you have Leviathan, you've got the sea is presented as just chaotic, and then you finally get to Revelation, there's going to be no more sea, meaning no more chaos, no more storms like this. But Jesus is showing you that he's greater than the sea, but he's also showing you he's the new Moses, but he's greater than Moses. Because what did Moses do? I mean, he put his staff out, and they went through the waters on dry ground. And they're going through, they're going through, and they look back and the water's closed and every, you know, they see nothing but judgment behind him. They see nothing but wrath, nothing but justice, but right in front of them, all they see is mercy, mercy, grace, grace, grace. They look behind them, water's closed, Egyptian army's destroyed. Jesus doesn't need dry ground. He can just cruise on top of the water. He's, he can actually be bored with gravity. Does that ever happen to you and me? I mean, I was amazing. Three kids raised their hand that they can walk on water. I mean, wow. I mean, I think when the first one raised their hand, the other two were like, no, me too. If you can do it, I can, I can do it. I can walk on water. Uh, I don't think so. And, and liberal commentators have a hard time with this passage too. They think that somehow there was a sandbar, you know, but it's in the middle of the lake, but somehow there's just this sandbar that Jesus is walking on a sandbar. No. What Jesus is doing is he's fulfilling, he's showing us who he is, that he's greater than Moses, he's all-powerful, all-knowing, but there's this interesting reading in Job chapter 9, where Job is telling his friends about Yahweh, because they don't seem to get it. And the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, has these same words, that he walks. It's this Greek word, peripateo. He walks on the sea, and that's what Job says about, G about Yahweh in Job 9. He says, who alone, this is Job 9 verse 8, who alone stretched out the heavens and walks upon the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south. He's talking about constellation. Who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me. Sound familiar? and I see him not. Well, Jesus is passing by here, and he's showing them his glory like in Ezekiel 34. And so the response should be faith and repentance. But the disciples are scared to death. They cry out, it's a ghost. Jesus says, take heart, it is I. And this is where the 
English translations will miss this verbiage that's very, very important, and it's the Greek term ego eimi. Jesus is saying, I am. Take heart, I am. Don't be afraid. When Jesus says, I am, who is he saying he is? Because he's revealing, he's saying, I am Yahweh, the one who showed up to Moses in the burning bush, and Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Jesus shows up walking on the water and says, I am. Take courage. Don't fear. And so when we read Mark, we miss some of these, you know, we think, oh, John is the one with the great I am statements. And there's a lot of them in John, particularly John 8, where Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he, that he would see my day, Jesus' day. He saw it and was glad. Now, you think about how that went over to the Jews. The Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This is what Jesus is saying here. And it's not the only place in Mark where he says it. The the key confession in in the Gospel of Mark is Mark 14 where Jesus is arrested, he's before the high priest, he remains silent, makes no answer, the high priest asked him specifically, are you the Christ, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, ego me, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. How'd that go? Well, the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What's your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. They began to spit on him, cover his faith, to strike him, saying to him, prophesy, and the guards received him with blows. He went to the cross because they they saw the blasphemy because he's claiming to be God. Well, he was God. But this whole nonsense that he's a good teacher, as C.S. Lewis says, nobody thought that. (laughs) No, he's claiming to be, we get what he's saying. They got it. Do you get it? But to be astounded, here's the interesting thing I think that we can try to unravel this knuckleball. Here it is. It's one thing to be astounded and astonished, and it's another thing to believe. And you can be astounded and astonished and not believe. Like, I'm astounded when I see one of these scenes where somebody's blindfolded and it's like, you know, America's Got Talent and somebody's blindfolded and he's throwing knives and somebody's, you know, up here like this and, you know, and this person's taking a knife or an axe and throwing them and I'm astounded at that. Now, I'm astounded, but I do not have faith that I will be the volunteer to stand up there with my hands like this and let you throw knives and axes knowing that you'll never miss. Uh, No thanks. Recently, I was going through the channels and it was America's Got Talent, I think it was, and there's a chainsaw. And of course, that instantly gets my attention because I love chainsaws. And this was a big one, Will. This was a big chainsaw, nice long, you know, 24-inch blade or something. I mean, it was a long one. And there's two guys with an apple between them 
holding in there, and they're with their teeth, they each have a side of the apple, and this guy's got a 24-inch bladed chainsaw, and he's, and he's blindfolded, and he's running the chainsaw between their lips and cutting the apple in half. Now, I had to just watch, right? He did it, blindfolded. Now, I was astounded. How many of you, though, would be one of the people that would put your lips on the apple and say, bring the chainsaw between me? Anybody? I mean, it's one thing to be astounded. It's another thing to have faith. It's one thing to be astounded when you watch those reels and you see a wingsuit and a guy, you know, jumps off a cliff and he's flying down between the trees and then there's this rock with a hole in it and he he goes right between the hole and you're just like, that's crazy. You're astounded, but would you jump off the cliff? With a wingsuit? No. So what Jesus is getting at here, and Mark's getting at for us to see, is that the people, these disciples, they are absolutely astounded. But they don't understand that he is the provider. That the, and you're going to see it again when you get to eight, chapter 8. He's going to do the same miracle, same thing again, going to feed the 4,000. Then they're going to get in a boat. And he's going to tell them once again, because they're going to start asking about bread, and I guess we didn't bring enough bread with us, and he tells them again, your hearts are hardened, aren't they? You don't get it. I provide. I take care of you. But you know, we're just like that. I think for us, we would rather be astounded. We'd rather be blown away and completely overwhelmed. But to believe and to actually exercise faith means that we are to follow Jesus and obey him. And where we're going with Jesus is Jesus is going to a cross. And he's calling us to go to a cross and to take up a cross. So if we truly recognize him, we see how these other people, they, they run. And some people kind of criticize this, that, you know, there, there isn't faith here. Well, it's just the opposite of the beginning of the chapter where he can't do any miracles or hardly any because the people don't believe. But here the people absolutely believe. And anybody who just even touches the fringe of his garment, they're getting healed. Are we going and telling people about Jesus? And are we bringing them <clears throat> to Jesus? Do we have an urgency? Do we put effort to our faith? Do you believe in Jesus this morning? Well, what do you believe about him? As we come to the table, let me just ask you this. Do you believe he's the image of the invisible God? Do you believe he's the firstborn of all creation, as Colossians 1.15 says he is? Do you believe that by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities? Do you believe that all things were created through him and for him? Do you believe he's before all things? And in him all things hold together? <clears throat> Do you believe he's the head of the body, the church? Do you believe he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead? Do you believe that in everything he should be preeminent? He's not to be the North Star of your life. It's nice to have a North Star for a little bit of bearings. He needs to be the sun. So that 24-7, 365, you're rotating around him, not loving Jesus and making a wonderful plan for his life. No, he's the sun, we're the earth. We're, we're, we rotate around him, not vice versa. He's to be preeminent. Do you believe that? Do you believe for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell? 
Do you believe that through him he reconciles to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, that he made peace by the blood of his cross? Do you believe that? And do you believe that yourself were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds? Colossians 1.21. And that he's now reconciled you in the body of flesh by his death. Do you believe that? That he did this in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Do you believe that? Because that's good news as you come to the table. And do you believe that if now you must continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, and not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you once heard? Do you believe that? You see, that is our hope. We're to put feet to our faith like these people on the shore did. The people out in the water didn't get it, but the people on the earth is literally the word. The earth people got it. The people at the sea didn't get it yet. But well, we're on the earth, and yet there's still times where we're in all these storms, and we're straining at the oars, and you might feel like you're in the middle of a storm right now. Jesus intercedes for his church. He prays for us. He comes to us on his timing. When it's good for us, he comes and ministers his grace. I'm going to stop there as we'll come to the table this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, we do believe to help our unbelief. May our faith grow. May it reach these unbelieving parts in the depths of our hearts, the areas where we still want to reign or rule. Lord, forgive us of our many shortcomings where we want to use you for our purposes, where we don't see who you are. Our own hearts can be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, and we pray that they would be soft and tender. And now as we come to your table, We renew our vows to you as you renew your love for us and remind us that you've given everything for us. We thank you for the privilege of fellowship with you. Meet us at your table now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.